want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes, yes. 30 Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, play hearts, keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kalsik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? Uh, well, uh, I can't complain. How about you? Well, I well I can, and so can you, and we will. <laughs> we would, No, sorry. That was a total lie. We are absolutely going to complain. But as for life, life yeah. is fine. Other things, less fine. Other things, less fine. TV, you know. End of the show, guys. End of the show. End, end of the show. But, um... We should focus on the positive yes. a little bit here because we talked with Dennis Perkins of the EV Club this week about The Wire, and we the like said fucking wire said like three things in about an hour, but it was awesome to talk with Dennis, and that's coming at the end of the show. Yeah, are we calling that The Wire Part One? Is that official? That's officially The Wire Part One, guys, because we we didn't we we finished talking for just about an hour, and then you and I realized that we hadn't even mentioned the docs. And we hadn't even mentioned most of the characters or things that the show like we, we talk about different thematic ideas and different things that we feel like the show struggles with and spent almost no time on the things that we love or the things we think are underrated. Uh, so you, there's going to be a part. Yeah. two. The, the wire is hard to talk about is what we found out. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we did talk with you guys somewhat this week. Uh, most of the conversation hinged on two things but we also heard from augustine uh who said at the website best fan on tv for me is bolin from cora and i know this is a tv podcast but i think the best representations of fandom in any media is still galaxy quest which uh augustine i i doff my cap because i love galaxy quest so much any thoughts on galaxy quest I have actually never seen galaxy quest oh, so funny it's one of the most re at least of course i'm a nerd i'm a trekkie so there's that but i think it's eminently rewatchable totally worth uh it's, it's just such a safe uh pick everybody i've shown it to has left so i think you should check it out anyways um he says ironically the absolute worst was a film called fanboys i remember fanboys i think i saw that in the theater and was underwhelmed though i didn't say it's the worst what, what's your worst depiction of fandom oh, worst depiction of fandom uh really glad i didn't see fanboys because it just looked like my the opposite of my idea of a good time um I don't know. Nothing. Nothing really stands out to me. I I, te I tend to avoid, uh, like, I know that some people like earlier this year, angry video game nerd was a thing. I avoided that like the plague. Uh, I I I mean, I don't really, except for a couple of documentaries, I don't tend to seek out uh, fan related content. It just occurred to me there is bad fan. I've never seen bad fan. I hear it's great. I don't even know what that is. That's the uh, see. Cat I'm a bad. Oh no, no! You mean big fan? I mean big fan. Sorry, my bad. You mean big fan? Uh, yeah, that's that's a sports fan though. That's a little different. <laughs> well, uh, uh, the only thing that comes to mind for me is is Big Bang Theory because I don't feel like they're. I feel like that's somebody trying to make what a fan looks like rather than an actual fan. But everybody else loves it, so you know I'm probably wrong on that one. 
Uh, anyways, thank you for for writing in, Augustine. Uh, I, we had a lot of fun talking with uh, Paul last week about about fandom, so that was uh, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Uh, Damien put up the best TV uh, Christmas drinking game, which he got from a, a different website. But so what you do, gentle listeners, what you do is you take a Santa hat and you put it on the corner of your TV, and then whenever somebody is like leaning backwards in the frame and is ends up is wearing the Santa hat, you drink. And it is delightful. We're going to try that out this, this year at Christmas with my family. So when we're sitting around watching a movie or something, I think I think it's going to have to – we're going to have to bust that out. That does sound wonderful. Yeah. And the last thing I'll come add here is that Mario says uh, he just watched the, his first episode of Jane the Virgin, which is episode three, and he might be hooked. And Mario, welcome to the party. Late is better than never. Yeah, especially since uh... – Oh, I don't know how much of this I should say, but the show hasn't been getting as as much love as it should be. Yeah, based on yeah, as per usual, based on the premise and usual dumb things that people judge things on because that's how people are. Yeah, well, and that's the other two things that everybody talked about. Everybody t- on Twitter this week, it was all the the newsroom and oh, we'll get there uh, in the drama section, and as well as the listing, the listing, the has listing. Begun. It's always the listing. So we have our sound on site best TV series list compiled. We're in the process of writing it up and thinking about it and deciding what we're going to say, but 95 shows were, were, were submitted by the various members of Sound On Sight, contributors to Sound On Sight. That's a yeah. lot of shows. Are we, are we going to release the full ranking? Because I think that would be hilarious. I don't think we're going to release the full ranking. Um, we're going to do at least a top 30. Uh, I fully support a top 30. And I also think this is the only comment that I really put out there, and I'll say it again here. There is too much good TV for people to just release top 10s. I think we need to start thinking about getting into a top 20 or even a top 30 as being as prestigious as being in a top 10 used to be. Because there's just too much. Well, and there's too much. And because there is so much, it's there's no possible way for people... For people who have other jobs who aren't crazy like we are, <laughs> to have seen the 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 breadth, to really feel to to you know, it's very difficult for a group of people, especially any of these compiled lists like the Hit Fix Critics Poll or something like that. It's very difficult to to start with a basis of you've all seen the same shows now rank them. Yeah. Well, and also like that consensus that forms when you have a group of critics uh, or a group of anyone really voting on this sort of thing, it tends to make sure that the sort of more niche series uh, that that will actually hold more interest for like a good number of your readers uh, will fall outside that threshold. Yeah. And that happened with a few shows that we love that will be on our top tens <laughs> that will not yes. be... On the site-wide top 10, because people can't watch everything. So uh, yes. don't worry. There'll be plenty of listening here on the Televerse. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will say that six of my top 10 are also on the site top 10. So that was good enough for me. Yeah, it's, there's a pretty... Yeah, I really I really like our list as a site. I like our top 10. Uh, I don't agree with all of our top 10, but I really like them. And I, res- I respect all the picks that, that are going to be on our list. And that's, yes. you Even- know... Even the top 30. I don't think there's anything that I dislike in the top 30. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, that's that's a lot of TV. So uh, it, it's been fun arguing about things and talking about things. And that's been much of the conversation, at least for me this week on, on Twitter. Fargo. Everywhere. Everybody loves Fargo. 
I don't know where y'all were in February, but okay, <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, it was a fun show. But yeah, we'll, we'll, to be continued, not next week, but the week after when we start our, our end of year podcast. But for now, we should get into uh, our week in TV because it may not be a very... Uh, uh, it may not be one of our most filled weeks in TV, but we got a lot of wire talk coming, and we don't want to keep you guys forever. So yeah. we're going to dive in uh, with the comedies uh, right after this. So we'll be right back. What do I smell? But some fat next to me. That's the man. Fit it and fat it for fatty fat Feel free to suck it. Feel free to suck it. You can suck it and put it in your mouth. This week in comedy, we're going to talk a little bit about Key and Peel, Sex Addict Wendell, uh, Bob's Burgers, Father of the Bob, Adventure Time, The Cooler, and Jane the Virgin, Chapter 8. Jane the Virgin is back. Can anything upset it to win the Jane the Virgin Award? We will find out. But first, we will find out. Key and Peel, uh, Sex Addict Wendell. Now, we haven't really been talking about Key and Peel. Uh, on the podcast recently, and for me, there's there's a reason. It's been a little underwhelming, and I, I, I still love the show, and I still really respect everybody involved with it, but it's it's that thing that we talked about earlier in the season, Simon, when we discovered there are going to be 22 episodes. I feel like that's that's too many episodes for a sketch show. I mean, I don't know whether that's the problem or not. It could be that also both of these guys are getting involved in other projects, and uh, the fact that they have a 22-episode order and have time to do anything else is insane to me. But anyway, um, I mean, specifically in this episode, uh, what bothered me was uh, we really only had one sketch that I thought was funny, which was the uh, the Dick Nanigans with Chelsea Peretti just killing it. That was a great, great guest spot. Um, that was funny, although uh, we... Again, we have that stinger at the end at the doctor's office, which is so unnecessary and not funny. And I just feel like there's been a, a real reliance on lowest common denominator humor uh, this, well, some this season, but particularly in this episode. I mean, you've got exploding balls, you've got some gay panic, you've got uh, sex, sex addiction jokes. Uh, I mean, I don't know. This am I am I missing something here, or, or is this or is this sort of a, a coarsening that I that I didn't detect before? Well, and I think the bigger thing for me is just that it's it's not making me laugh. It's not funny to me. And so any pretty much anything, if I'm laughing, I don't really care. Of course it is. Uh, right. But, yeah, lowest common denominator jokes are rarely successful for me. That's really the kind of thing that makes me laugh. I need there to be a couple levels going on within the dick joke, you know? Uh, and, uh, and so while... It's great to see Reda show up, and I love the concept of a scat battle. And the whole, it didn't end up really working for me. No. And there's also, like, that's been happening a lot, too. Like, an idea that's funny on paper, but either it goes on too long, 
or it doesn't have an ending, or it needs some other aspect to its execution to really work. And it's still it's a it's it's beautiful to look at, and uh, you know, in terms of their actual performances as written, there's always something to be impressed by. But uh, yeah, it's not really clicking lately. Yeah, but an episode that absolutely was clicking this week. I think one of the series best, certainly the best for me in quite a while, was Bob's Burgers, Father of the Bob. And I got. I also loved the voice cast this week as well. What did you think of Bob's Burgers? Uh, this was great. I mean, it, first, I don't know why it feels like every every Bob's episode is a holiday episode now, but I'm cool with it. Um, they, uh, as we've said before, they're great with holiday episodes, and I think that this one in particular uh, did a great job balancing uh, the heart with with the laughs and I it actually delivered on both fronts which is something that Bob's doesn't hasn't always been doing lately for me uh but yes you're right the voice casting was spectacular I- introducing this element of Bob's dad uh was really great and I, I wish that they would do more to sort, to sort of expand the show's universe a little bit because it's felt a little it felt a little claustrophobic for a little while sometimes in a fun way but I, I like the idea of of uh, sort of expanding the show's universe a little bit yeah, and you know, we praised the the voice cast. We should say it was Bill Hader was was the voice of uh, Bob's father, Big Bob. Yes. Um, and and was that uh, uh, was that Nick Offerman as the as Pete? Nick Offerman was in there as Pete, and uh, we also had Carl Reiner in there. Nice. Oh, as yeah, okay. As yeah. The, was it Lou or the 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 regular? The regular, yes. The regular, yeah. Um, so yeah, it was so much fun. I like it's our first significant flashbacks on Bob's Burger, at least of this nature, and I just thought it was very well executed and nice way to, to fit with the holiday theme while giving us something we haven't seen them do before. So I thought it was very well done. Um, what about Adventure Time? Did that uh, was that as successful for you? The cool. Uh, I mean, has there ever been a bad Adventure Time episode? I mean, you've now watched all of Adventure <sighs> Time. I've caught up, guys. You're right. So you've now watched something like 200 episodes of Adventure Time. Uh, was there ever a bad episode? Nothing sticks out in my mind, certainly. Yeah, exactly. So they're not about to start now. I like that, th- I mean, we've talked about this before, but I love that this, even though it's ostensibly, or once was, Adventure Time with Finn and Jake, no one thinks of it as Adventure Time with Finn and Jake now. We can have them show up in, was that... I mean, are, are we meant to assume that the events of this episode take place at the same time as Food Chain? Is that what's happening? I have no idea, but... Because uh, that confused me. But still, the only time we see Finn and Jake is on a monitor for about seven seconds at the end of the episode, and that's awesome. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I love that this is an episode that just takes the the vaguely um, tyrannical and uh, fascist reign of Princess Bubblegum and just embraces it and just goes yeah yeah she is you know she if she wasn't so sweet and adorable to to us because we like finn and jake and finn and jake like her um she would be evil (laughs) you know she 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 sneaks she she puts the entire fire kingdom in peril so that she can sneak in and steal their 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 military stockpile basically um, and while under the guise of helping, but because of the personal relationship between the characters, that makes it's not just like a you know sanctions on you know a cu- country that has me- weapons of mass destruction. There's an extra level uh, or layer of betrayal there, and uh, 
Yeah, it, I, I thought I loved it. And I love the way that it ends, too. It's just it's it, this is an episode of a show theoretically for kids about about the surveillance state and <laughs> and the pro- proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and interventionalism. And come on, guys, how <laughs> the, the number I was I said this on Twitter this week, the number one thing that I'm taking away from my obsessive looking at everybody's lists at end of the year best lists is that way more freaking critics need to be watching adventure time because if they were it would be on their lists yep i i can't disagree with you uh i i sort of want either someone needs to write uh remember the thing i wrote about spartacus someone needs to do one for adventure time because it's better than your favorite show yeah as spartacus was yeah that's that's a i'll have to ponder that maybe that can be my end of the year article the only difference is that this will never I just I want adventure time to never end. <laughs> and it's it's I see no reason for it to because they just keep churning great episodes and it is universally beloved by the people who actually watch it. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of them. If you ever if, yeah, just, you're never going to go to Comic-Con, but if you did, you'd see there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, it's just too bad more of them aren't critics. Yeah, it really is. Um anyways, there are some of them. There's some critics out there. Stay strong guys, keep fighting the good fight. Uh there's also a few of us uh, Fighting the Good Fight for Jane the Virgin, uh, Chapter 8, was this week. So great to have the show back. And um, and again, I would like to see it on more top 10. It's, it's on um, Ryan McGee's, friend of the show Ryan McGee's top 10 list. So there's a few critics that have it on their, their list there. Um, but I was so glad to have Abuela back this week. I liked the resolution of, of the the lawsuit. I thought that made sense and didn't feel contrived, I guess. What, what did you think about this episode? Uh, it was, I think it was maybe the weakest episode so far. I still liked it. There was a lot to like. It's still Jane the Virgin, but it was really weighed down by the Louisa stuff for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the most interesting thing about that character was the fact that she was gone so long. Uh, we were like, where's Louisa? I wonder what they're planning with Louisa. What they were planning with Louisa is she comes back. Oh. Yeah. All right. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's the performance or the writing or just the whole conception of that character, but none of that was working for me. And it t- it takes up a fair chunk of the episode. Well, and I really didn't like what they did with the character. I'm thinking back to the earlier part of the season when, you know, that scene with her and Rose where she's talking about all these things that she's done wrong, but she's not drinking. And making that choice to not drink is what's keeping her together. It's, it's it's allowing her to feel good about herself and to know she has control over that part of her life and that she's not going to make the same mistakes. And she's, you know, she's, I really enjoyed that scene and what that said about the character. And so then to have her fall off the wagon off screen and do who kn- God knows what, unless it's a fake out, but I don't think it's a fake out because no. the narrator says it happened in the, the narrator. The narrator is God. It's so. God. The narrator is not allowed to be lying to us because that undermines <laughs> everything. Um, so I yeah. just think it's a really disappointing way to, to, to take the, have the character show back up. You're like, you say it's, she, she left because they didn't know what to do with her and they bring her back because they don't know what to do with her, but they know she needs to be back for the trial. Yeah. Uh, I, I also thought, like, to be honest, the whole uh, escort drugs Raphael thing was kind of dumb. And I, I do like the scene that we get with her and Jane afterwards, but that whole conceit was kind of icky. Yeah, I was okay with it. Um, it. It fits for me within the world, and I buy Petra doing that. Um, 
I, I like what they're doing with Petra so far. Um, and I like that Lachlan is playing her as much as she's playing him. I like what we get with Michael. I think they have a good balance with that this week. What did you think of, you know, the inclusion of that part? Uh, that was fine. I, I'm not sure if I like the actor playing Lachlan, but he also hasn't, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see if he can show some of the sort of comic edge that Petra's had. I don't know if it's not coming out again in the writing or performance issue. We'll see over time, but I'm not, I'm not totally sold on Lachlan yet. Fair enough. Well, uh, what wins your week in comedy? Is it time? Uh, uh, is it time for what? For an upset. It's time for an upset. Um, ah, that's hard. Because I, I, there was a lot to like about Jane the Virgin this week. There's a lot to like about Adventure Time. Um, ah. There's a lot to ah, like about Bob's. My, it's my, it's my, there was a lot to like. Actually, no. I will give it to Bob's. I'll give it to Bob's. That was one of their best episodes in a long time. Yeah. Um, I think I, like, I'm torn here for the same reason. Because there's a lot I liked about Jane, uh, but I think I also have to give it to Bob's. It was a really good episode. So, in an upset, the Jane the Virgin Award goes to Bob's. Goes Burgers. to Bob's Burgers. So, huh? Well, I, I'm and I'm, and I wish they had instead of adding the spark thing, I wish they had stuck to the glowing heart thing that they were doing earlier. I don't know why you need to change that up. Well, for Jane, because the those are two different things. Yeah, I guess, but they didn't seem. It didn't seem like they played them in this in a different way here. At uh, least with well, Jane. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's di- that, that's that's tricky. Are they trying to indicate two different emotional and or physiological phenomena? I'm not sure. Well, uh, we'll have to see. Jury's out on that one. We will report Jury's back out. next week. But for now, let's take a break, and we'll come back with a quick genre roundup from me. So we'll be right back up to this. In genre, I'm going to talk about a little bit about Supernatural, Legend of Korra, and then the Flash and Ariel crossover. Simon, you didn't watch any genre this week. Was it a a, a more grounded week for you? Uh, as a result, I don't know. I was actually planning on watching Flaro uh, or Air. I don't know. Anyway, I was actually planning on it, despite the fact that I don't really like either show. But uh, I I just didn't have time. Yes, these things happen. Um, First up this week for me is Supernatural because I keep not intending to talk about Supernatural on the podcast because I don't really have a lot to say, but then they keep doing fun things. Like this week, it was basically Fargo uh, with Jody Mills returning and there's like a sheriff convention and one of the characters we met in a previous episode who was a sheriff is there and she's just like, she's Marge. That's that's who she is. Um, And uh, it's just sweet and kind of adorable so I, I mean it's such a knockoff character but the performance is really charming and you know having a or as an 
It's not even that she's Marge. She's much more like the deputy, uh, like Alison Tolman's character at the beginning of Fargo, where you can tell she's very smart, but she's also not as confident yet. Um, and so combining all these elements together really works so well. I love whenever they bring Jodie Mills back. I, I love that she's not dead, unlike most of the recurring female characters on the show. Um, so it just was really fun. And so well done, Supernatural. I'm, I'm digging the almost entirely standalone thing that they're doing this season it's you know i'm on board with that that was hibbing 911 was that episode legend of core operation beifong had some of the best action scenes of the season and i felt they were long overdue nice to see toff back in the middle of things for at least a little bit talk we talked a little bit about bolin's fandom and watching him just like lose his mind (laughs) over getting to meet toff was pretty fantastic so i i had a lot of fun with with this one even if again week to week watching of the show. I don't know how y'all did that for for four years because the show works so much better mainlined. Um, But with Flash and Arrow, I thought this crossover was really fun. I thought it was very successful Uh, because what it does is it embraces the differences uh, in the tone of the two shows and in their heroes and in their worlds. They tie it into differences in the city, the kind of city it is, who's in charge, who, who, the kind of criminal that is attracted to these different areas. And so that's interesting, but they also then tie it into the soul of, of Barry Allen versus, you know, uh, Oliver Queen has had to deal with a lot more traumatic stuff. Though I like that as soon as Oliver goes to play the my mother was murdered in front of my eyes thing, Barry's like, yeah, mine too. So, you know, stop using that <laughs> as your excuse. And and I still, you know, get off zippy one-liners, you know, uh, as well. Uh, there's just a lot to really enjoy here. And the for me the big difference in why i have enjoyed uh flash so much more or so much more quickly than it took me to get into arrow is that tonal difference and the the lack of broody angst dripping out of the corners also the less lack of flashbacks um and so to see what does oliver queen feel like surrounded by everybody on arrow on flash i should say and what does Barry Allen, you know, he feels naive and um and and foolish and uh unsteady you know when when he's on Arrow and uh what and and Oliver Queen feels like a stick in the mud and uh, uh just kind of scary violent <laughs> and just really intense and over the top kind of like when on Angel when they would have him you just be super angsty and broody and they would make a joke of it. That's pretty much what it felt like on, on, on flash. And it's just such a fun thing to see the show embrace to recognize those strengths. So I really enjoyed those. I don't know whether you would or not, Simon, um, because you don't like either show. Uh, but I think they did a really good job with these and I look forward to future crossovers as well this week i'm going to give i'm going to give the weekend genre to the flash arrow crossover and specifically the flash episode i think i like that one a bit more than arrow so i'll give it to that one but it's been it's been a fun week in genre for me uh now we'll take a break and come back with our week in drama which a little less fun what are you talking about that's where all the fun is we'll be right back
this week in genre, um, Simon's going to talk a little bit about the Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce pilot, uh, rule number 23, Never Lie to the Kids. Then I'll talk a little bit about elementary this season, and then we'll both talk about Kingdom, Cut Day, the penultimate episode, The Affair 8, The Newsroom, Oceanindoa. Oh, The Newsroom. Anyways, let's kick things off with Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. I didn't get a chance to see this pilot. Um, I forgot to set aside time earlier in the week and then ran out of it. How, how did this work for you? Uh, well, for the uninitiated, this is Bravo's, as far as I know, their first scripted series. Sorry, let me let me rephrase that. It's their first openly scripted series. Uh, <laughs> it's their first marketing it as scripted series. Uh, and it's showrun by Marty Noxon, stars Lisa Edelstein, uh, with her husband being played by Paul Edelstein. I never stopped finding that amusing for some reason. Uh, I actually had trouble with uh, knowing whether to slot this in comedy or drama because it does have... Uh, some really broad comic beats and some uh, fairly potent dramatic ones. For me personally, uh, the I would say that there is there is a, a five to seven minute stretch near the end of the episode when uh, Lisa Adelstein's character goes on uh, hooks up with a guy, and everything around uh, everything up sort of leading up to that sex scene, the sex scene, and what happens immediately afterwards, uh, including some fallout. That stuff is all great. Uh, the stuff with her hanging out with her gal pals, uh, and, you know, going on shopping sprees to feel better, and all this other stuff, that, those scenes did not work for me at all. Maybe it's because there's just way too many shows following way too affluent people, and it's just, it's, it's starting to grate on me, and it feels like they're trying to appeal to the demographic that watches Real Housewives. Uh, I don't know. But it's not, to me, like, the, the satirical elements are not doing enough to undercut those scenes for them to work. And also the characterization of the other characters, not so good. Although, as I understand it, Janine Garofalo is only on for, I think, uh, seven or eight episodes before she gets replaced by someone else. Which, I don't know how wise that is. But anyway, uh, so there's things to like here. Uh, I think it's one to watch. Um, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll, it'll sort of, it'll lean into the good things it's doing in the future. So we should check it out? Yes, I think it's worth checking out, but I would say that that first half an hour is is was a bit rough for me. Okay, noted, and I've I've heard that from other critics as well. There, this is a, definitely a show about rich people, and when it's focusing on that element of the li of your li their life, the characters' lives, I should say, I could see how that would get, um, how that could disconnect you from the emotions of what's going on or the humor pretty quickly. Um. So yeah, I'll just keep that in mind. Um, elementary, I wanted to talk about this week because they're doing something this season at Elementary that I think is uh, really notable and they're shockingly successful with it. Have you watched any Elementary this season? Uh, I only caught the premiere. Yes. So what you did then meet Kitty. Yes. And I find the introduction of Kitty in this season of Elementary fascinating because they've They've succeeded with that character. This is the cousin Oliver. They've added a third party, a main character, to their, their core duo in the third season. And they've written her incredibly well. They've not contrived conflict between her and and um, and Sherlock. They haven't used that care to, character to lead to uh, sexual tension with, you know, or, or jealousy. There's none of that. And it's so wonderful. When's the last time they took a, a, a show, any show, uh, especially on network TV, that had, was basically 
entirely centered around a chord duo and added, you know, especially a opposite gender chord duo, and then added a third person into that as an equal partner and had no bullshit come from it. What are you talking about? Everyone loves Holly. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's the perfect example. <laughs> that, that right there is the perfect example. Um, or I think of something like, um, obviously, this is a different situation because there is a romantic, uh, all sorts of romantic entanglements on Bones. But when they brought in um, the the girlfriend for, for Booth on Bones in a season, I want to say it was like eight. I want to say the character's name was like Catherine or something. But he came back from from his tour or his re-enlistment or whatever with, with a serious girlfriend who was a reporter. That, I think that's another prime example of, of just not really working. Um, and it, it feeling like a delaying tactic or a stalling tactic or very much a contrivance here. They've done such a fabulous job. Uh, the actress is Ophelia uh, Lavabund and she's been, she's been fantastic. I mean, literally Sherlock shows up in the pilot in the premiere and says, yeah, I tried to replace you. Uh, so here's here's your replacement to try to make me. Yeah. I'm trying to recreate our relationship. If that's exact, you know, and maybe because the show's been so bald faced with what that that relationship is or what the character wants it to be, or they haven't tried to pretend that that's not what's happening. Uh, maybe that's part of why it's so successful. But I gotta give credit to the writers. I gotta give credit to the actress uh, for making that character work. Um, yeah, well done, Elementary season three, still kicking ass. Um, let's move on, though, to uh, Kingdom, you know, something we've both seen, and talk a little bit about Cut Day, their penultimate episode. We we talk later in we talk later in the show about uh, Andre Royo and some of the other alums from The Wire. Were you glad to see him pop up here? Uh, yeah, it's always a great surprise to see Wire alum show up, especially someone you don't get to see very often, like Andre Royo. I don't think I've seen him on my television since Fringe, uh, which was a while ago, dare I say. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, this episode in general was just a really great time. The, I need way more stuff kingdom, like the scenes of the three guys just hanging out in the gym, chirping each other for 45 minutes, because that was delightful from start to finish. I love that Ryan just turns into a little bitch <laughs> and, and, well, but, and you know, the, the way that they, they let the character just be that selfish you know have that that moment of selfishness and 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 call him out on it but also not devalue it so when they have jc you're acting like you're the first person who has ever done this we all do this every time with every fight and you're always a pain in the ass when you have to do it um so you know because it's completely blue how many people that you know or maybe you know some of our listeners i know i can be guilty of this maybe some of our listeners can be guilty of it you go on like a health kick you try to work out more, you st- or you give up coffee, or you give up something else, maybe for Lent or something, and all of a sudden you just get really irritable, and every yes. single time it's the same kind of idea. And so I I love that him being just grouchy and <laughs> kind of bitchy all all day because he's got to do this uh, doesn't stop him from doing it. Doesn't stop you know doesn't negate uh you know what's going on around. But I like that the other characters understand this. They call him out on it, but they also you know don't give him too hard of a time. Yeah. Also, uh, supportive Nate, way more interesting than quiet, broody Nate. Oh, so much more, more interesting. I love that first scene of the three of them. Where it's like, I don't want to do it. But when he's like, the, the, I was in prison. When I was in prison, you were in prison? 
<laughs> wow. And, and we talk about like, you know, and they're like, some of us would love to be cutting weight right now, but we have a crippling injury. <laughs> like just, you know, the way that they're so clearly just fucking with them. Oh, it was hilarious. Uh, yeah. The, 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 the back and forth and through it's throughout the episode. And then, and then to have that underplayed with, um, at the end of the episode, Jay, who's been just basically giving, uh, Ryan shit the whole episode to say on the phone to his dad. Yeah. It was brutal. It was really bad. Um, it was really hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, it's, that shows you, you know, he completely understands as well. It just, I thought all of that was really, well, really well done. Um, what'd you think of the Lisa stuff? Uh, I th- I didn't really have any problems with any plot lines this uh, this week to what I remember. Uh, I think that – I mean, I, I would say the Lisa and uh, Alvy stuff because that stuff was very tied together in my mind even though they were geographically separated. Uh, I mean, to me, the important thing was that we finally got some more context for what's happening with Alvy, uh, which was desperately required. Yeah. And uh, – just knowing that he is he is having legitimate struggles that don't just involve him doing dumb shit, uh, I think is important. And hmm. uh, I I real like the whole time Andre Royo is there, you're thinking, okay, Andre Royo, I'm really glad they cast you because you're such a device character, and yeah. uh, they needed you to be really good at this. Well, I kept waiting for him to have been in Alvy's mind the whole time. Kind of tying into <laughs> yeah. like that that dream sequence we got to open up. Well, I said it was like episode five or something. You know, like I wouldn't put the show past something like that, especially if he's just like drunk in a hotel room. Uh, so, and because no one else interacts with Andre Royo at all, it's just yeah. the two of them. Uh, so I was very glad when that didn't happen. Well, the the, t- the topless women by the pool supports that theory. Yeah, and, and who knows? Maybe they, they could go that way with it. I guess if they wanted, but but I like that they didn't. And uh, yeah, like you say having a really good actor in a functionary role like that can do a lot to make the, 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 the storyline uh, palatable. And we needed, we needed Alvy to talk about what happened with, with Christina and, and what, you know, what's going on with, with uh, Lisa as well. I loved when was it, I, I loved the conversation we got with Nate and Lisa. I really liked um, when, when Jay is trying to have, he's like, yeah, he did this to our mom all the time. She's like, you're not, you're not helping. That doesn't make me feel any better. Mm-hmm. But it would be much better than last week for me, and uh, I hope they end the season really strong. Yes. I'm assuming we get lots of fighting next week, which I'm totally down for. Yeah, that's what I would imagine as well. Um, and we'll see where everything... I-, I hope that they conclude the season. I hope it doesn't just end on a cliffhanger. Yeah, that would be nice. Um, I- I'm hoping that in the future, the show leans more on the humor and more on the camaraderie. And, you know, if they want to do that with awesome fight scenes, that's great too. <laughs> so you you want like a more grounded strike back? Uh kind of. Yeah. Kind of. Well, except, you know, with I with, with with fewer icky socio-political implications. Okay, fair enough. Uh well, let's move on to the affair, episode 8, the their anti-penultimate episode. I don't I don't get Love to say that. that word enough. Uh what did you what did you think about this one? Um, not as good as last week. Uh, there was nothing bad about it, really, but it's sort of sneaking back into homework territory. I liked seeing a little bit of these two relationships, main relationships, being functional, the the marriages. I really liked what we got with um, Alice in Allison's story with her grandmother, but also uh, her mother-in-law. I think that could be interesting. Always great to see Mayor Winningham get something to do. Uh, I like seeing Blair Brown pop up as the therapist as well. A little fringe yeah. there. That was cool. Um, 
Yeah, and I like that this episode, while having showing the characters trying to really function in their marriages and showing how much they value those relationships, does a good job of of also showing the significance that of the relationship that Allison and Noah share as well. It doesn't devalue that, even if the characters wouldn't make that choice again, and you know. Uh, or at least it seems like right now they wouldn't. I hope they wouldn't because I don't need to see that merry-go-round again. Anyways, um, the the scenes with the hospital, you know, I thought those complemented each other really well in both halves and were, again, were, were interesting. I don't know how Noah doesn't immediately tell his wife what happened because that seems like that's just asking for trouble. Um, but on the whole, I you know, I like this one, even if it's not, you know the most mind-blowing of episodes. Uh, yeah, th- that stuff is all good. Uh, I wasn't as much a fan of... I mean, Maura Tierney's great. I love having her on the show. But that scene of when they're in the therapist's office and she's talking about how uh, Dominic West was the safe choice and I felt smart for doing it. Like The fact that you can say those things and not know how horrible it sounds makes me care less about you as a character. Like, I, I understand that it's coming from a place of honesty, but that, you have, that you're so unselfconscious about what you've done in your own life is worrisome. See, I think she knows how terrible it sounds. I, I, like, I was picking that up in her performance, in Tierney's performance, that, like, she kind of, the way that she, like, hesitates before she says it, I like that this is something she knows is terrible, and that's why she hasn't said it before, um, and that she's, and who knows how, how true it is, but that's what it feels like now. You know, um, so I think she is aware of how terrible it doesn't change how passive aggressive she's being through much of that scene leading up to that point. And so I absolutely see it's challenging to for her to maintain um, sympathy there, maybe. But um, but no, I think for me, it she seemed aware of that. Hmm. I guess that's to be continued. Yeah, I, I guess it, it, it just felt like such a. Uh, like the fact that it, you're at this point in your marriage and you still lean on that story mm-hmm. uh, and still are willing to use that as a bludgeon uh, in a totally, in just a very bald-faced way, uh, they're going to need to get past that soon for me to care about that character. Okay. Yeah, and, you know, they've been in therapy now for what they said it was like four weeks, five weeks, something like that. Um, and so I'm assuming that's only, this is the first time she said anything like that. And she's struggling to to deal with, and she's. I like that they don't gloss over. I like that they don't seem to linger on, but they also don't gloss over the pain caused to the spouses by the affair. No, yes, it's very present in both their scenes, even even when it's unspoken, like it is in uh in the Joshua Jackson scenes. Uh, but I I but I I have to say the most interesting line reading of the week or line of the week has to be, uh, when they're discussing it. Uh, I'm not, I forget whether it's in therapy or not. And uh, Dominic West says, "You have to forgive me." <laughs> that that that's an interesting idea. Yeah, it fits with the character, but yeah, yep, yeah, definitely. Well, uh, shall we? We've put it off for as long as we can. Shall we do this we, thing? Yes, is it time? Let's do it. Okay. Yep. Uh, longtime listeners to the Televerse will know that there is a rarely occurring feature of the show. That's really, it's been on the back burner for quite a while. When's the last time this came up? I want to say it's like Downton Abbey season like three or something, like with the Bates in jail stuff. Did we 
Did we not do it for Stalker? I don't think we did it for Stalker because I feel like every you know we it was already a given. Everybody knew there wasn't you know. I don't remember. We may have busted it out for Stalker, but whether or not we did, it's definitely deserved here. Everyone, this little drum roll, please. It's time for another spotlight of shame. So there. There was a lot of buzz going into this episode of the newsroom. We had heard that it was worse than last week. We had heard um, just all sorts of, like, watching Twitter as friend of the show Libby Hill watch her screener of this episode on Saturday was just sort of hilarious uh, as she just vaguely reacted to things. Um, But, of course, obviously couldn't say what she was reacting to. So there was a lot, for me at least, there was quite a bit of hype about how terrible this episode was. Uh, Simon, did it live up to that hype for you? I mean, I mean, when you say buzz, we're talking about like the kind flies make around a corpse. This, the, 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 the vibe emanating from this episode. I, I, okay, here's the story for me. I'll keep it, I'll keep it brief. I had heard as early as last Sunday, uh, when you guys find out what next week's episode is about, you're going to lose your shit. And so my mind went in various directions. Challenge then accepted. It... <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so, uh, and then in midweek, I found out it was Campus Rape, which in light of what's been going on with Rolling Stone's horribly botched UVA story, I thought, my God, this can't really be, this can't really live up to how bad I think it's going to be. And like, okay. I've I know that many of the writers of the great pieces we've had this week Emily Nussbaum, uh Libby Hill, uh Tara Ariano and I feel like I'm forgetting Panawasik. someone. Panawasik at time, thank you. Um great pieces, uh not so great comments often and I know the writers specifically avoid them. I actually went into the comment sections of those articles and read the and, and read the comments cuz I felt like someone should. And what I noticed was a lot of well-spoken readers uh, commenting that they thought the episode and the scenes in question, which are really going to be the heart of what we talk about, I'm sure, uh, not that the rest of the episode is good, because it really isn't, um, but, you know, the, the Don and Mary scenes are the, the heart of this episode, if we can call it that. And that was really what most people were talking about. And I, I saw I saw a lot of very reasonable sounding people uh, talk about how they thought that don't yell at me, but I but I thought that actually the the presentation of the issues was was quite even handed, and I think that that is the most insidious idea of this episode, and that's what we should really concentrate on trying to dismantle in a calm, non Sorkin character kind of way. Which is one of the comments in Nussbaum's piece that I thought was particularly brilliant. Uh, the notion that talking about this episode turns people into one of uh, Sorkin's caricatures of, uh, you know, angry, especially women on this show. Uh, and even as you quoted other people's comments about this episode, I could feel my hand clenching because uh, <laughs> it's infuriating. And I agree that that because, you know, and as I watched the episode, when we get the, we return to this Don and Mary sequence several times in the episode, I want to say it's like three or four times. And as I yeah. watched the first scene, it ends with that. I'm here to beg you not to do it. And I, I was like, OK, I'm, it's intriguing. OK, whatever. I was like, I, I see the first scene. I'm like, oh, they're not going to do this first scene. It's like, OK, this seems pretty even handed. 
Okay, I don't know why everybody's making such a big deal. Uh, then we get the second scene, and I'm like, holy shit. They're not they're not kidding about this. They're they're certainly they're not actually not kidding. The reason that this these scenes are so infuriating is because they have that sheen of uh of even handedness, like like you say. They pretend to give equal time to the victim here, but by choosing to have it be Don, who is in this role, to have it be the only, at this point, even remotely likable male character on this show. I mean, maybe Will, but Will's just so insufferable. Oh, Charlie used to be likable. Used to be, exactly. At this point, the only likable male character on the show is Don, mostly because they've kept him off with Sloan to let them be screwball comedy buddies. Um and so they have it be, you know, the, the male character we are the, the most likely to take seriously and to give credence to. And then they have him tell a victim, or sorry, in Sorkin's word, an alleged victim. In Sorkin's words, responding mm-hmm. to the reaction, Sorkin does not believe that, that Mary is a victim of rape. He believes Mary is an alleged victim of rape, which just going to let that sink in. Cause that was infuriating to me as well. Um, Cause even he doesn't believe his own character that he wrote uh, and that he cast Sarah Sutherland to play. Um, he, he tells this, this woman who's looking at him in the face and telling, saying, this is what happened to me that she should just shut up about it because she was unable to take her case to court. And, and this is the calm, rational result. And he feels so bad about it. And that's that gives him more credence. credence that, that makes him more respectable and more laudable and more correct in the eyes of the show. It gives her some chance to talk and then dismisses everything she says. It's worse because it pretends to be even-handed. And it's also worse because both actors are so good. Mm-hmm. Like we we need to really praise them because uh they're doing a, a really hard thing which is they're they're dealing with basically they're they're dealing with hazardous material and they're imbuing it with as much humanity as they can. And that also helps to sh- to shield you if you're not really parsing the details of, you know, the script, which is really the issue. Um although the fact that Don's the fact that they make Don sort of go into this lower register the whole time, where he's just like, I'm sorry, I know, I don't understand, I understand, no, I don't understand, you're right, you're right, but really, I'm right. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> anyway, exactly. Like, <laughs> and, and like, I mean, ultimately, I, all that really matters is the fact that she actually wants to go on the show, and he doesn't, he takes that choice away from her. Yep. Ultimately, Don is the arbiter of what happens. Under this, you know, he he white knights her. Let's just let's just call it what it is. And uh, again, because of that veneer of respectability, that veneer of I forget who which which of those think pieces was talking about well stuffed straw men, but uh, that was very much uh, that was a theme in this episode and those scenes in particular. And yeah, I mean, reading I don't want to really want to bring those things in, but but reading what the uh, what the dissenting view of of uh, one female writer from the from the writers' room, and then uh, Sorkin's comments about that dissension, and his later comments in the New York Times, just uh, if my big takeaway from this episode, really to say something positive, is the is the fact that the Sorkin era is ending, and I'm not just saying that because uh, his show is ending. I mean 
the era of uh, show, people like Sorkin getting to run shows and getting to sort of get their voice out there, them being the sort of people who get to have an authorial definitive voice on television, is ending. And that's great. That is great news. Every, every time I uh, think about part this episode, really, every time it comes up in conversation over the course of the past week, um, when I'm reading different articles, when I see people comment about it, Every time, basically, every time I hear something new about this episode, I get reinfuriated, and uh, we're trying to keep this a very calm discussion and very <laughs> level-headed because you and and I, you know, I I would have loved to see the show try to do that same scene and have it be a woman, have it be Maggie. How does this scene play if it is Maggie and not Don having that conversation? It couldn't be Mac. Mac's too busy with what's going on at, at ACN and what's going on with Will. It could have been Maggie. Uh, well, and the whole notion of tasking Dawn to do it is, is I mean, it's bizarre on a character level, but it's just bizarre on a level of doing news. Like, wh why would you Why would you send a man to do that story? Well, and it, uh, it's also when you talk at the, to that level, you're telling me that this is a journalist who for years will have covered the news meaning he's covered crime beats he's watched trials he's seen evidence and he's seen court cases fall apart and he's seen people that with everything he knows are guilty go free because that's he would have seen that and or who are innocent be railroaded and he you're telling me he just is going to inherently believe in the system and trust that the system is right and not dissent with that that i don't believe that on a basic humanity level and a thing that a journalist should believe well actually i th i would say that actually <laughs> <laughs> actually what's really happening is uh, no um don makes clear that he doesn't have faith in the legal system and uh they let sarah sutherland get in some really good points again well stuff strawman um I think what's happening is that, uh, as many people have said, Sorkin and by extension Don uh, cannot think outside institutional logic. So uh, he is, he acknowledges that the justice system is flawed and uh, doesn't serve victims and isn't meant to serve victims. Um, but he, but the uh, but any alternative is too terrifying to consider because it's not the thing that exists. <laughs> so you know. Someone else very astutely tied that to the earlier scene where uh, Jim has a little snarky comment about Snowden, and uh, and t you know talking about ah oh, you, you you kids blah blah disdain for institutions like yeah it's supposed to be funny but is it? <laughs> mm. Well, I mean when when Don makes has that comment about the O.J. Simpson trial, he's the one saying that O.J. is innocent because he was. Found not guilty. Acquitted, yeah. Acquitted, yeah. And and there's like a, a anger or a frustration in his voice in that line delivery. It's like, so wait, what you're telling me is that he's a hypocrite because he doesn't actually believe this, but this is what he tells the world because he feels he has to. And the show praises him for that? The show puts him up to be respected <laughs> further and says that he is a paragon of moral journalistic integrity because he lies to the world about what he really feels. Hmm. I hadn't even thought of that. That's a whole new angle to be annoyed by. Uh, but yeah, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> well, and having him, 
and you, you alluded to this earlier, having him consistently sit there and say, yes, you're right. You're right. Like, like allowing her to, to like deigning to give Mary approval. It's like when she says, you can't know what I feel like. Yeah, you're right about that. You're not right about the other stuff, but I, I'm going to validate you on the fact that this man doesn't know what it's like to be a woman. Yeah. Uh, it's so condescending. Also, just on a, just on a, like a script level, did, uh, and someone else pointed this out, and I still, having watched the scene several times, to, to the scenes rather, several times to really parse what's wrong with them, uh, it's weird that uh, that he only talks about one guy he talked to when she was raped by two people? What's exactly. that about? Exactly. Exactly. That's another problem with this. Uh, 100% is the problem with this. And it, because it becomes a, very much a singular conversation um, there. And this notion of not showing... The, the scene or this the scene being more effective or more powerful because we don't see the accused the alleged rapist um and and having that conversation shift to being one person one perpetrator uh is very problematic it just it also seems lazy to me uh yeah well sorkin's comments uh which i was really glad to to, to read this morning uh because they just really clearly outline how clueless he is about this whole thing um, his, his comments about, uh, like you said, calling her, uh, an alleged victim, which him writing those scenes and co then calling her an alleged victim is just, is everything that tells you everything. Tells you everything you need to know. But, uh, but his hit, what he was, when he was talking about his choices about what to show, what not to show and the effect that was supposed to have on the viewer, it was just disastrously miscalculated. Yeah, because he, and I would encourage our listeners to go read up that piece it's about the reaction to this episode in the new york times his he he says that he intentionally wrote the character as being very relatable and recognizable as she's the audience's sister she's the audience's roommate she's the audience's best friend and that's how he intentionally conceived the character and then has his surrogate say i don't believe you by extension telling the audience your sister says she was assaulted your your best friend your roommate says she was assaulted well, I don't believe her. And I'm going to tell her as, this as she's crying to me, as she's overcome with emotion. The calm, rational man, as so many of these reactions pieces have keyed, keyed into with the lowered voice, who's staying very rational, is telling this hysterical woman that yeah, in as neutral and passive and uh, with the sheen of respectability, a tone as possible, that she is a liar. Yeah. And... None of that even touches on just the basic factual stuff. Like yeah. when Don is talking about, oh, this might hurt someone's chances of getting into medical school or on a football team. Okay. Um, I, I, I do like that, that Sarah, the, the Sarah Sutherland character is at least allowed to say, I don't give a shit about those things. Yeah. That was good. Uh, but I don't think that we're supposed to like that she said that. And also, football teams don't give a fuck what you do. Clearly, that's been demonstrated time and time again. Can we just make that clear? Yeah. Well, and also the the statistics of of uh, alleged assaults that are found to be uh, uh, someone is alleging they've been uh, they've been raped and that finding to be a false accusation. It's two percent. And so what what this character says is. I don't care. The ninety-eight percent of you that have actually been raped should shut up because of, in case there's two percent of 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 accused men who will suffer. Right, and I have seen some commenters uh, again because I did go through the comments for this exact reason. 
I have seen some commenters say that they buy that argument that that you know the the whole notion of uh, better for one person to yeah for you know etc cetera, etc cetera. you know what I'm saying uh, but again this is not a court of law mm-hmm. you know we're we're not dealing with uh, with uh, with with a jury system here we're talking about giving pe- I mean the 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 aspect that I really had trouble with in terms of the way uh, the Sutherland character is written, Mary, is when she talks about her website and frames it as being about revenge. Yeah. And frames it by saying, I want to scare you. I want to scare these men. Um, that didn't really ring true to me. I feel like someone who's doing that probably is thinking more about the people making the postings than the people on the other end. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Well, and and honestly, if 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 Sorkin really wanted to have this conversation and really wanted it to have power, he would have had this happen to a, a female character that Don knows and cares about and then had him say the same thing. So it's easy for Don to say this to someone he's just met. I, so if Sloane tells him that she has been raped... And has no evidence. Is he going to stand there and say, well, I have to believe the person that you say raped you. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. That, I mean, the second that he says, I am obligated to believe him, the scene is done. There's nothing, there's no saving that sequence because it is just so baldly ridiculous. I cannot think of uh, a- a- any any journalist who approaches that who takes that stance is just immediately it, it it loses all credibility yep can we just for a second though can we it's we are a spotlight of shaming this uh because it's a bad episode of television so it's we should just bad. take a moment we should take a moment to just note all the other ways in which this is bad ghost dad can i get some credit ghost, for ghost dad ghost dad you yes you called ghost we were we were watching this in tandem and chatting back and forth and what you made a comment about Oh, Kevin Rankin's in his head. When it, when you said that, I thought you meant, oh, like he's getting to him. Uh, no, you literally meant Kevin Rankin is in his head and it's his dad. And I should have beget- I should have figured out that that's what they were doing. Uh, such a hackneyed voice. Uh, I mean, credit to Kevin Rankin for doing his best, but well, it was, there was no saving that. And, and even aside from the stupidity of that, Will has like two pictures in his jail cell. Why would he ever bring a picture of his dad that he hates so that the camera can pan over to it at the end of the scene? Yeah. Um, the uh, and, and Okay, let's. there's so much bad stuff to talk about. The Charlie stuff, how on earth, since he's dead now, I guess they'll never get to justify the insane switch in his character that took place over less than two months. And off screen? And off screen that was that renders him completely the opposite of how he's been for the entire run of the show, or how uh, every character has been. How many times have they said that they will quit if uh, if the if, if the their boss like they would they would quit in uh, if they fired Will or they you know these different things? Uh, don't tell me that entire newsroom allows this level of manipulation of the news and uh, this this treatment of charlie without quitting their jobs or or they can all just be hypocrites and posturers you know it could be that they weren't actually telling the truth when they said all the things that they've said in the previous two and a half seasons seasons of the show that could be true but then you need to comment on that yeah uh so that's just bizarre Mm -hmm. um but of course you need charlie to do all that in this ridiculous way to even justify 
the rape story even happening. So not only are the rape discussion scenes bad, but the justification for making them happen is absurd. Yeah, it's really not good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's like they, they retroactively manipulated everything so that they could have this conversation about campus rape that was so horribly uh, approached and um, condescendingly executed. Yeah, like like the show does some heavy lifting to make these terrible scenes happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It, it goes it, out it of its way. It took some doing. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, and of course... If we're talking about terrible, oh, uh, God. The we worst couple about... on television. Yeah, Jim and Maggie. You know, Jim and, and Maggie. I I uh I can't remember whose piece it was, uh, but someone described it as it might have been Sonia Sarai over at Salon. Somebody described it as uh, like a, a whirling vacuum of of uh um off-puttingness or something like that. Like when they kiss at the end, it's just like incredibly um. You, you just don't you don't want to see it. It's gross. No, I would go further than that. I would say that the Jim and Maggie scenes feel like a prequel to Rosemary's Baby. Like, <laughs> the, like you are watching the conception of something wicked yes. and wrong. And the only thing that is a bomb is the fact that we only have one more episode to, to watch it play out. Yeah. With uh, some just terrible um, music, piano scoring underneath that entire sequence every time they cut back to them. Um, and that leads us to what I guess will be my final point. Cause we've gone so much longer than we wanted to, uh, <laughs> which is Oceanindoah. And, you know, I have to thank Aaron Sorkin because I was so angry watching this. I was so infuriated that this was a thing that was happening. You just needed a good laugh. When they started Oceanindoah, I busted out laughing. It was fucking <laughs> hilarious. I was like, and of course, Oceanindoah. Did they take the audio from House of Cards earlier this year and just like splice it in? Because, oh my God, I don't know why. I mean, because it's like, it's like Sorkin was like, okay, what is a s stupider and less effective and more ridiculous uh closing musical number to do than the ave maria sequence last week i know oh shenandoah oh, yeah that was that was truly a gift and finally sam waterston is released oh my god from, and my and like literally the, the that's another thing we get to be happy about let's 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 bring some positive energy in here all of these people are released now yeah none of them ever have to do this again <sighs> and we don't have to watch it after no, again don't. yeah sorkin says he's retiring from tv and good fucking riddance after this <laughs> and and you're a way bigger sorkin fan than i am i'm a so. much bigger sorkin fan i love a lot of the west wing of his era of the last west wing and i have a, i really uh love uh, sports night as well there's things that i like about um studio 60 though obviously that that shows other problems but but damn it's time yeah. for, uh, for you know, a return of the Hallelujah Chorus from last week because, wow, after this, I don't need to see another Sorkin TV show, I think, ever. Yeah. Well, and here's to the, to the end of the boring, affluent, white, middle-aged motherfuckers running TV shows because we need something or anything else. Uh, to fill the gap, and that's what's hap That's what's been happening this year, and will continue to ha to happen. And God bless television for doing that. 
Yeah, I can't top that. That's a wonderful note for us to go out on. So, uh, yeah, what wins your week in drama, Simon? <laughs> um, I will give it to Kingdom because they were just delightful this week. Uh, I will give it to Kingdom as well. A few show notes here at the end. You can find a post for this episode up at soundnotesite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV and specifically of the newsroom, I think. Uh, <laughs> if anybody's watching it, that's the other irony of this is that well, not irony, but just sort of amusing underscoring this. Nobody's actually watching it except for critics at this point. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There are there are some people who really love it and think this was a good episode. I've seen like two reviews or write-ups at blogs about how this was a good episode. Um, pretty much everybody else is on on uh, on our page, though, on our wavelength of that. I highly recommend yeah. people check out any of the number numerous fabulous pieces about this episode. Now, Kate, if people disagree, do you want to hear from no, them? No, fuck off. <laughs> All right. Don't it's listen to our podcast. <laughs> and don't write in. Oh. If you oh, think okay. if you think it's if if you think Sorkin was right to have uh, a character tell an alleged rape victim that she should just shut up. And she should just not have her voice feel like she should have her voice heard. And then made took another a, yet another decision and ounce of power in the situation away from her. I don't really need to hear from you. Um, I I would love to hear people who feel like it's a valid argument. The like the forty nine, you know, like a hundred people should go free so that one innocent person is not like that is I think a valid argument. Um, and so I I welcome I welcome that conversation, but. Uh, most of the people that I've been seeing like this episode, I don't, I don't think I need to hear from you. I don't know, Simon. What do you think? <laughs> I, I, th I think that you're, you're just protecting yourself. I think that's fair. Okay. I mean, so, so many, like, like I said, the, the, the reviewers themselves were very open about the fact that they, they just can't even deal with the commenters in this one, and I, I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. Anyways, you can also email us, gmail.com. <laughs> about anything else. <laughs> You can find us on Twitter. Uh, you you can uh, find us on Twitter. I'm at the Televerse, and you are uh, at Sucker Howl. And we have a Facebook group as well, uh, where you can you can like us and start a conversation. I think this is a perfect example of the kind of thing we can talk about on the Facebook group. Um, so, anyways, Simon, what is our question yes. of the week? Uh, well, I won't directly tie it into the newsroom, but I am curious. When was the last time before this? Uh, and not the newsroom <laughs> that you watch something that just uh, just completely on an ideological level made you want to throw things. Um, what immediately comes to mind is uh, torture is successful, yep. which has happened on um, several shows. And uh, or, or that it's acceptable or that, you know, these other things or that it's the the presentation of torture in certain shows um i'm more willing to accept it as a plot device on something like 24 because it's so baked into the the show i don't believe that that is a true depiction of reality the way that they you know jack she's just going to torture some guy for 30 seconds so that he can get the information he needs um and i think the way it's been uh, yeah, I, I, so I, so I, that's that's what comes to mind. But I have, I'm having trouble thinking of a specific example uh, of that. I, I'm guessing for you, it would be that episode we got last season of Strike Back. 
Uh, that would be a good example. I mean, that that's a trope even in shows I like, mm-hmm. uh, which is why it's extra annoying. Uh, I, I would throw in there, and I know it's a pet peeve of yours, uh, casual police brutality mm-hmm. uh, yeah. on, on, on cop shows. You know Never what? good. I would. I have a specific episode then. It's it's the the night shift pilot where we had um, we had doctors withholding morphine from their patients uh, for that who was a bad person who had like killed someone or beat someone up, uh, I, like abused a woman or had you know killed somebody for being gay, something like that. Like we had a, one of those things, a, an utterly despicable character, and then we had his doctors. With her turning off his morphine drip because he was a bad person, um, Ooh. yeah, and we're spo- and and the show presented that as a laudable thing as, um, and come on, you don't make you don't make Miles from Lost a torturer, but they did. So I think that that's a specific example that comes to mind. Yay! Yay! So let us know what you think. And on that note, let's take a break and come back with Dennis Perkins from the AV Club to talk about The Wire. A conversation uh, to be continued, but here is part one. And every Friday night, we're in the alley behind the cut ring, we rolling bones, you know? I mean, all the boys from around the way, and we roll to late. Alley crap game, right? Like every time, he snot, and fade a few shooters, play it out to the pots deep, snatch and run. What, every time? Couldn't help himself. Let me understand you. Every Friday night, you and your boys will shoot crap, right? And every Friday night, your pal Snot Boogie, he'd wait till there was cash on the ground, then you'd grab the money and run away? You'd let him do that? We'd catch him and beat his ass, but ain't nobody never go past that. I gotta ask you, if every time Snot Boogie would grab the money and run away, why'd you even let him in the game? What? Miss Snapoogie always stole the money. Why'd you let him play? Got this America, man. If you walk through the garden, you better watch your back. We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week on the DVD shelf, um, Basically, I'm screwed because I have no idea what I can possibly say about the series we're going to talk about. Other than that, I love it, and I'm very excited to have uh, Dennis Perkins from the AV Club here to help us talk about it. Uh, Dennis, welcome to the show. We're talking about The Wire. (laughs) Hi, Kate. Hi, Simon. Normally, I would start with what made you want to talk about The Wire, Um, But that seems like it is a bit of a foolish question, considering it's one of the most critically adored series ever made. Um, Mm -hmm. So besides the fact that it's obviously it's a fantastic television series and generally accepted to be a masterpiece, uh, if you have to pick an element to it that, you know, makes you want to keep coming back to it and discuss it, 
what would you go to? Uh, a couple of things. One, um, you said I could, uh, when you asked me to be on the show, you said there was a list uh, of things that hadn't been talked about, and this was one. And so, I, obviously, I grabbed it immediately. Um, I couldn't believe no one had done this one yet. So that's reason number one is that you let me. Um, <laughs> um, number two, uh, the, the the name of your podcast, The DVD Show, has a special uh, uh, significance for me because I, in addition to the AV Club and other hundred places I write for, uh, I work in one of the last uh, video stores left in the world. So uh, I actually handle DVDs of The Wire every day. And, uh, you know, interact with people every day about The Wire. I've turned on, you know, literally dozens and dozens of people over the years to The Wire. I, you know, they ask for, you know, a good show that they haven't seen yet. And if I find out they haven't taken The Wire, I, I push it on them. So I, I think I'm, you know, the Portland, Maine sort of uh, the, the number one uh, sort of uh, pusher of, of The Wire um, in town. So, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, things like that. And, and also... I, I think about a lot about the show in general. Um, you know, I, I bought the entire set. I watch it uh, sort of obsessively. I go through phases where I just have to watch it again. And I was just in one um, recently uh, when when you asked. So uh, that's those are my reasons, basically. And they're excellent reasons. And <laughs> thank you for for doing the the TV universe uh, a solid by getting more people to watch The Wire because this is. <laughs> You know, and obviously, pe the kind of people who are listening to a frequently two-hour-long podcast about television probably have already uh, heard of and seen The Wire, um, but are certainly it's a much they're going to be much more aware of the series than the general population is, and that's that that's perhaps the most surprising thing to me about The Wire is it's it's very easy in our bubble to forget that a lot of people will still somehow never have heard of this series and not have watched it or vaguely heard rumblings, but, you know, not taking the time to catch up with it. So uh, anytime you can get somebody to check out The Wire, any of us can. I, I feel like that's a win for culture <laughs> as, <laughs> as these things go. Uh, Simon, what, because I know that you comparatively recently did revisit The Wire. What makes you go back to it? Well, I used to work at a video store and I also forced the wire on a lot of people. And I remember always giving them the same disclaimer about, I know it's going to seem a little bit slow at first, give it a disc or two. If you're not hooked after that, that's fine. But I think you will be. And without fail, every single time those people gradually got all five seasons, maybe two discs at a time, maybe three. And, uh, and they were always pleased with it. What, when you're talking about Kate, about uh, whether or not people have seen it or still talk about it, it's clear that everyone even remotely connected to the TV industry saw it and loved it. I mean, anytime any any comedy series that's come since The Wire has referenced The Wire at least once as a cultural touchstone. Um, and, you know, and, and and, you know, obviously every no no TV critic can be taken seriously unless they've at some point commented on The Wire. And, it, you know, it's it's part of the. Uh, sort of necessary curriculum of a of a current TV viewer that they need to have seen The Wire. What I find interesting about uh, about the show in retrospect, though, and I kind of want to talk more about the culture around it of the show than the show itself, because the show has been so written and talked about. Although I'm sure we will talk about the show itself as well. Is like as much as the show is admired and universally beloved by TV lovers and people who work in the industry. 
what's surprising, you know, now it's been how many years since it ended? Like almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And uh, you haven't seen a whole lot of series. You've seen a lot of series uh, pick up the cast members from The Wire. Like the cast of The Wire is everywhere. Uh, And not just Idris Elba either. I mean, literally everyone uh, that I can think of who who was on this very large cast has made appearances elsewhere, and it's all thanks to The Wire. Uh, so you've seen that happen, but you haven't really seen anyone uh, sort of tr- sort of pick up the ball in terms of the t- uh, in terms of its approach. And I, when I say its approach, I mean uh, having a point of view, taking this novelistic style and adapting it to television, where every season tells a story. It's not teasing another story. You know, every season is very contained and and has that literary feel, the Dickensian aspect, if you want to put it <laughs> that way. Um, and it, it and it has like, like a very you know it has through David Simon and, and his writers uh, a very clearly delineated point of view, and also importing writers from an from an area that is that, that is not television. You know, importing crime writers and uh, and people like that to help craft stories and lend verisimilitude. That goes to the actors as well, but that's another story. Uh, so these sort of more people are interested in these network narratives and they're interested in crime stories, but they're not necessarily uh, interested in emulating the things that I think made the wire really special. Well, what I think is interesting when you talk about the structure of, of the series um, is that it, you know, 10 years on it, it really, it feels like a precursor to what we're starting to get with anthology series where it's in the same universe, it's in the same world, but it, each season has a different focus and a different structure, which is apparently like what we're going to be getting with Fargo when it starts season two next year, and some of these other series where it's it's necess- it's you know this is distinct in that it's the, some of the same characters, but again, each season, like you said, has a different focus, and there's a distinct point of view that ties the entire world together. But even a show like Treme, which of course we love here on the Televerse doesn't take the same approach. There's different focuses at different points in the series, but it's still very much the story of, of a set number of communities. You don't have the the shift in Treme like you have in The Wire. And I think that's maybe what some people were hoping to get with Treme and were disappointed that they didn't. But, but I do, it's interesting for me thinking of The Wire's approach to storytelling and to telling the world, the story of this world of, of Baltimore in a you know in a chapter structure in a season by season structure as a precursor to what we're getting now. Yeah, I one of the, one of the things you know I'm, I'm from a ground level uh, trying to get people interested in the wire you know which you know being in Maine are generally you know white uh, <laughs> uh, middle aged people who just you know they just finished you know finished up uh, Castle and they're looking for a new show or they just finished up you know another cop show. And they ask, you know, um, the way I approach it is, you know, this is like, I mean, first of all, what I say and what I believe and what I'll say here is this is the best American. This is the best thing I think that television has ever produced. I think it is the best television show I've ever seen. And I don't think anything else comes particularly close to it. But what I say to people, I start with that. But then what I say is that it's in the form of the most basic television it's a cop show. What it actually is, is like a great novel of an American city. It's top to bottom. Each season is its own. Like you were saying, 
there are characters and there are themes that run all the way through, but each season was conceived as a separate entity that took apart one aspect of the city of Baltimore, Maryland. And when you try to compress it all and you try to think about the depth and the breadth of how, you know, how deep they got into, you know, the heartbeat of an American city, it's just, it's dizzying to think of. And frankly, it ruins most other TV for me, especially this genre, especially cop shows, especially when you, you know, have other shows dealing with, you know, what this basically is. It's just cops versus drug dealers for the most part. It makes other shows, other shows that I like, other shows that I enjoy, it makes them look um, two-dimensional. It makes them look like cartoons. Like, I I had never watched The Shield. I watched The Shield after I watched The Wire, and that was a big mistake, because The Shield's really entertaining, but it it just, I, I was watching a TV show, whereas here, I watched The Wire as something different. That's an interesting idea. I mean, the... I think I I love the Shield and I love the Wire. The Wire is the better series. The Shield I see as more of a, it's not a um, it's not a a real politics show. Let's put it that mm. way. Like the, it, it it I wouldn't call it a cartoon. It's more like Greek tragedy. Whereas uh, which also you know obviously the Wire also has connections to classical tragedy, but um. The Shield is much more broad in the way it brings in those tropes, whereas uh, The Wire is very much about specificity and and sort of dealing with uh, real things and real people, or at least trying to treat people as though they're real and bringing that level of respect there. But I think I know what you mean in terms of, like, especially when we – the fact that we divide our time between law enforcement and and the corner boys and their their bosses, etc., I mean that in itself is sort of a revolutionary idea in terms of uh, in terms of long form television at least for the time because you're when you equalize that space when you give uh, you know equal time and dramatic weight and value to the criminals as you do the cops you're you're inherently subverting uh that hierarchy of you know of a show like Law and Order for instance where the you know the perps are incidental presences who change every week uh, and that you know, renders them second class uh, sort mm-hmm. of status on your television. But when you equalize that, I mean, that in itself is a political statement. Yeah. I mean, I didn't mean to pick on the the, the shield specifically. I took it I, personally. I know you did. <laughs> I was just I was just saying, um, I mean, this is it, it not only set the standard higher for me, it just it completely transformed uh, a lot of the things about the way I watch television, the way I think about television shows about uh you know what are the the you know the the number one i mean if you toted up how many cop shows versus how many other kind of shows i imagine cop shows would probably be the top in the in the history of television <laughs> i mean you just can't you can't have television without cop shows but i don't know this this kind of transformed everything about that genre for me and and i can't think of another show that did that in another genre that's all it's interesting for me, just just even listening to you guys talk about about the this approach and the the comparing the wire to other series because we've seen especially since the wire we've seen plenty of shows at least for an arc if not for the entire series explore the cops and their their counterparts in the drug world. I mean, right now, um, Person of Interest is doing that 
with with its um dominic arc that it's doing it's that that's a more common thing to see they're both sides are are people but what separates for the wire for me is that it when i see other series trying to do that trying to make you know to to spend time with you know if not equal time a significant amount of time with the people that the the cops are chasing it always feels like a pale imitation. It feels like a series of cardboard cutouts. Whereas um, in The Wire, what they do, they, they make the cops and their the people they're hunting seem very much equal. They make them both seem human. And it would be easy to say, oh, the cops and the, the drug dealers are the same because they make the drug dealers likable and they make the cops despicable, which I've seen plenty of shows try to do that as well. And that feels false too. Instead, they, when they make, you know, McNulty doesn't, McNulty is not, um, Vic Mackey. He's just an asshole. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's so like, you know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't try to get you to empathize with the drug dealers by making the cops abusive assholes or uh or corrupt mm -hmm. and it doesn't try to get you to sympathize with the drug dealers by making them likable and cuddly it just shows it doesn't it seems like there's not an agenda and in not having as much of an agenda in its depiction of both the cops and the drug dealers like you say uh simon that is that is a statement in a, just in in not taking a, a particular approach yeah if if I can, the <laughs> I don't know. This is the, the, the sort of a theme that one of the things that made me really think about talking about the wire is that. Um, this is uh, first of all, I'm going to preface this by saying, as I've said, this is the best show I've ever seen. And that being said, um, I don't know. Something was brought up to me. There are a couple of kind of pop cultural things in the last year that kind of. Uh, sort of put me on notice of how I was watching the show and, and what I would consider kind of a um, uh, paternalistic way in a way. I don't know if we can go mm -hmm. in this direction. Um, for all of the richness of the world that the show has and as how unprecedented an opportunity it gave to African-American actors on this show to create some, I would say like a dozen of the most memorable African-American characters I've ever seen on television. It's a white show in the sense that the creative team behind the show, most of the writers, you know, uh, Simon talked about, you know, bringing in all these crime writers. Most of them are white. Um, I'm white. Um, and a lot, a lot of, I'm very uh, white. Yeah, I'm so white, but the white guy here, <laughs> um, I was watching uh, one, one of the other shows I review for Saturday Night Live is, uh, I mean, for the AV Club is Saturday Night Live. And there's a sketch, a recurring sketch they do there called How's He Doing, where a group of black uh, people are doing a talk show about uh, President Obama and talk about, you know, how's he doing. And they, uh, one of them is talking about how, um, you know, white people and black people love Obama differently and talking about uh, if you're at a party with a bunch of white people and you're the only black person there and they catch your eye and walk over to you, you know, they're either going to tell you how much they love one of two things, president Obama or the wire. And <laughs> one of the other characters says, I like the wire. And the guy says, I like the wire too, but white people love the wire. 
And I was just like, oh. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing was uh, Donald Glover in his persona, his rap persona as um, as Childish, Childish Gambino. Gambino. Yeah. Uh, one of his tracks, he was talking about having kind of frat bro white fans um, and how uncomfortable it makes him sometimes. And one of his lines is, you're not not racist because the wire's on your Netflix queue. And uh, <laughs> the reason I bring these things up is it kind of, um, again, it kind of brought me up short because um, in a sense, I think that as rich a novel of an American city as this is, it's in some ways from from the African-American perspective of the show, it's coming in from the outside. And I don't know. I think um, that was something I wanted to talk about, if that's all right. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. Simon, any thoughts? <laughs> I love that you, it's like, yeah, we can talk about this. Simon, you talk about this. <laughs> um, I mean, as a fellow white person, uh, I don't really feel qualified to uh, to judge whether or not uh, it's African-Americanness is authentic enough. That's not really my job or my place. Sure. Uh, I will say that what I thought you were going to talk about, actually, when you started talking about, to talk about misgivings, uh, and I wanted to throw this out there uh, just because I think it's interesting. Uh, what I read, I read a critique years ago that I never forgot about where someone was writing about uh, the the depiction of drug dealers and talking about a, a, an important aspect of the way drug dealers tend to operate uh, that is not at all present in The Wire. And that's the prevalence of sexualized violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is not a trace of that on The Wire. I think very... And, and I, what I think, uh, I, I'm not, I, I don't think that uh, David Simon and his writers uh, don't know about that. I think that they made a very conscious decision to not include anything like that because I think uh, they know that if you start to include uh, aspects of uh, rape and sexual assault as uh, methods of control, uh, you're never going to get audience empathy back. And I'm wondering if, uh, if that's an acceptable compromise or, you know, if that's bullshit. Well, I mean, there's there's the thing when, when Cuddy gets out of prison and that woman ends up sort of being sexually abused and murdered at a party. That's how um, they get... Uh, um, uh, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to have to call her the stripper. Um, <laughs> the, the stripper who ends up with Lester, that's how they get her to turn... Uh, right, yes, there is yeah. that time and yeah but i mean that's a good point i mean there's i don't know i don't know I that's, that, the, I the, the that. broader the, the broader point i'm trying to make is that no show is going to be reality uh yeah no no palatable tv series is ever going to fold in every aspect of a situation and still be a palatable tv series i think that david simon and, Co- and company uh made the best show they could uh, while getting their point across uh, and making as few concessions as perhaps uh, as perhaps they could, and I think that was that was one of them. Uh, could they have folded in more uh, more black people in the creative process, and what would that have looked like? Uh, I don't know. I think mm-hmm. um, to, to to say that it could not have been improved is folly. Everything can be improved. Sure. Uh, as as we frequently say on the televerse, there's no such thing as a perfect TV series and we can happily delve into more of this series as uh, imperfections if we like. Oh yeah. Uh, I'd like to, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it's, I think it's absolutely, uh, absolutely valid criticisms that don't 
that don't diminish my love for the show at all. Well, and I'll jump in there to say my less, at least in my opinion, less thorny question or or the the asterisk that comes up for me with the series. um, Because, of course, I have, like, you know, time is right. There's no such thing as a perfect uh, series. There's not even really a perfect season. Maybe there's a couple that come close, and I would would argue season four of The Wire is one of them. But... Mm -hmm. For me, one of the big issues I have, you know, one of the things that, you know, like like you said, uh, Dennis, this is this this to you feels like it, there's a lot of African American characters, but it still feels like a white show. Uh, this is a very male show, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, there are some really fantastic female characters, but if if you ask most fans of The Wire, what are their favorite five characters? Most of them are going to name all men who are the the most memorable, who are the most iconic, who are the most interesting, who are the most developed, who are the ones that you wish you got more time to spend with. It's almost all going to be men. And uh, especially like a character like Kima, who I loved in the early seasons of the show, basically disappears. Um, There are very few through line characters that go all the way through the series um, and none of them are the women. So that's always for me something that, you know, like, I wouldn't want to change anything because that could change everything and you don't want to screw up the wire. <laughs> right. Um, but that is one of those things that I, I wish the show had a, you know, was a little bit less male. Yeah. Maybe. And I mean the, and the writer's room is overwhelmingly male. I mean, there's Agnieszka Holland uh, did some directing for them, uh, quite a bit of directing for them actually. And she's important. And there's a, a couple of female writing credits, but they're pretty scarce. Gotcha. No, I mean absolutely. Um, yeah, and and again, <laughs> I think I think we're in a we're in a uh, privileged position here to um, to criticize the show because we're criticizing it. <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, when you get up this high, as far as you know the the quality of the show, um, it can sound like nitpicking, but but it's important. I mean, you can't you can't just say this is the best show ever, although it is. Um, <laughs> without analyzing, you know, things that went wrong. And, and one things that one thing that I just to follow up on the, on the point that I sort of began and don't think that I developed properly, but um, like Simon was saying, uh, you know, this is like I keep calling it a novel. It's a novel written about the inner city. It's from the outside, and when it's dealing with African American characters, because it's written. Largely, I mean, overwhelmingly by white authors, you know, on all creative aspects of the show. But they do a fantastic job. And it, and they're from the outside only in the sense that, you know, they're white and not black. I mean, uh, Ed Burns and, uh, and David Simon were as embedded in Baltimore, you know, as you can possibly be. You know, being, you know, collectively among them, you know, a, a cop, a reporter and, uh, uh, you know, an inner city school teacher, you know, for years and years and decades, you know, I mean, they, they know what they're talking about. And that comes through, you know, I mean, I, I remember that one of the gigs I got after I worked at the AV club was, um, reviewing a show called low winter sun, which <laughs> was sort of <laughs> darkness <laughs> at noon. You mean <laughs> no low, low winter sun. The, uh, it was about Detroit. Yeah. The darkness at noon is the good wife parody of it. Oh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Awesome. I have to check that out. 
<laughs> um, but that show, you know, it, it was sort of, they didn't come out and say we're making The Wire Detroit, but there was definitely that, you know, that sense that we're going to dig in deep and it's going to be all about Detroit. We're going to show you. And it was just, it was embarrassing. The worst how, piece of shit ever. Yeah. Yeah. Remember. Like how superficially they mined Detroit for kind of ruin porn to, to sprinkle right, around yeah. the edges of their crappy, crappy little cop show. Um, I was, I was sort of offended just on the wires behalf that for, for any kind of sort of, um, uh, pretensions it had to, to sort of being Detroit's own version of the wire, because, you know, the wires Baltimore is, is, you know, as authentic as it gets. Well, and that connects to, I want to start talking about things we like that I don't often hear people talk about when they talk Mm -hmm. about the wire. What I think, um, makes the wire tick uh so much of the time is that it's clear that the people who made this show love baltimore they love the city they want to see it do good things they want to see the people in it happy uh and they want the drug war over and uh and there is a sense especially uh, and i think the the final season for all uh, for all the complaints people have about it, I think the final season and the final episodes do a great job of bring, of really hammering that theme home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that really, this is a story of Baltimore, uh, a city that these people love and want to fight for and want to see made better every day. And uh, that core, that that sort of dual core of cynicism and warmth, I think, is uh, what really powers the show. Uh, through even some of its uh, rougher spots here and there. And I think it's, again, and that sort of goes to the, the, the show having a point of view. But I think also, like, so many of these shows, like you talk about, like, Low Winter Sun, etc., uh, they traffic in this sort of cheap darkness or cynicism that has no uh, humanity to it. And I think, uh, ultimately, if nothing else, uh, The Wire is always about uh, humans, even even the humans in institutions. Like, the institutions themselves may be inhuman, but they're made up of people. Uh, and it's 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 very much interested in these these the, the human angle and the human aspect rather than any sort of cheap, uh, cynical point winning. Well, and also just you know, in a, comparing the wire and Low Winter Sun is just <laughs> too easy. So uh, in, in, instead, I'll say what you know instead of trashing on Low Winter Sun, um, <laughs> Low Winter Sun is set in Detroit, um, and I don't think it's a shock or surprise to anyone that the Detroit's had a hard time the past several decades. Whereas with the wire, it feels much more like, like this is a show that's trying to tell people what's going on in Baltimore or that Baltimore is having a hard time or that crime is a problem or that people pay attention to New York. They pay attention to Chicago. They pay attention to why is nobody paying attention to Baltimore? And within that, these are, these are the problems that these that the creatives see that the characters see how can you know, there are good people fill, filling the city how how come it's not getting better why isn't it getting better and that look at the you know while yes there's a lot of discussion of the institutions that are causing or um not fixing the problems every character is given motivation that is absolutely understandable you follow somebody like Carcetti through his arc, you know, of his time on the show. And you can see how it's very understandable how somebody starts out as maybe they're somebody who's going to make a difference and make change. And then over time, they end up where they end up. You watch, um, you know, these, so it's, 
people have good intentions for the most part on this show. Even, you know, the drug dealers, even, you know, they come from somewhere, they have good intentions, they are trying to do what's best for them or their family or what they feel is going to, you know, what they need to do to succeed. And that also includes a lot of people who want to make the city better. And yet, as a whole, it doesn't seem to be improving. Um, and why? And this is a show very interested in why. Yeah, I I was going to say the the sort of anti carchetti for me and my my dark horse pick for the sort of uh, <laughs> uh, one of the show's tragic heroes is is Presbulewski. Mm-hmm. Um, and Simon, as to what you were saying about the institutions and people navigating them, Presbulewski, I mean, he started off as one of the most hateful, worthless creatures I'd seen on the show at, up to that point. He was a racist, incompetent hair trigger violent cop and he worked his way through that particular institution until he completely under you know the the tutelage of of uh lester freeman which would fix us all probably um but uh transformed himself found himself as a caring competent person in that institution until they let him out of the basement for five minutes and he shot a cop um <laughs> he just realized that <laughs> He was a person who discovered his soul and also discovered that in Baltimore, if you want to make a difference, you have to find your place. You have to find the right institution if you're going to be part of it. And he did. He transformed very shakily over to the school system and by the end of that became, uh, you know, a a beautiful person, like a a really solid, pragmatic, unsentimental but hopeful person. And uh, so, yeah, he's my kind of dark horse pick for sort of someone who couldn't, who found his way out of Baltimore without ever leaving Baltimore, sort of. Yeah. The, the, the arcing of some of these characters over their runs is one of the things the show does the best. And because we talk about um, the, each season being a chapter or investigating a different area of the city or telling a different story, it's, the way that the inventive use of some of these characters throughout throughout its run, like you say, Dennis, when you meet Prez, you would never guess that he would be the character you were most rooting for by the end of season four. Um, and yet it feels natural the whole way. And th- I find it fascinating the, the, the way that they can take some of these characters and most of the characters in the show and, and, and build these very subtle, very um, believable transformations over the course of the series bubbles i think is another one that is yeah absolutely beautiful and absolutely earned and you get some really depressingly tragic turn falls as well and then at the same time they create a character like omar who is straight up comic book Mm -hmm. and yet is one of the best characters one of the most um entertaining but also relatable and human of the characters on the show yeah uh and i think that uh, when you're talking about the arcing, the uh, David Simon, George Pelicanos, Ed Burns, etc., these are people with uh, who clearly have a very strong knowledge of what you expect from characters like the ones you just mentioned. And it doesn't necessarily do wild and crazy things with them. What it kind of does is it follows them around and keeps following them and keeps following them and... Uh, and that lets and sort of going evolving past sort of the the arcs you expect in what feels like a very natural and lifelike way. I think McNulty is a great example of that, 
you know, if we'd had five seasons of McNulty as a fall down drunk asshole, <laughs> uh, that would not have worked. It would have, I think, would have really kind of wrecked the series uh, to see him uh, sort of shape up and then make an effort and then fall back a little bit and then uh, redouble his efforts at the very end. Uh, that is a is great character design. And what happens with Presbaluski is a great example, too. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, go for it. Oh no, just with McNulty. I mean, one of the one of the criticisms I have of the show, uh, sometimes the things that people pull out as their favorite things that ever happened on the show, I think are um, they're great writing and they're well crafted TV, but they kind of pull out as too effortful as sort of a creative writing from a creative writing standpoint. <laughs> If you're um, about to say what I think you're about to say, I said this exact same thing to Simon, and I love oh, you for oh. saying it. Go ahead. Well, I was going to stick with the McNulty thing, where uh -huh. at, the, at the end, when he's talking to Beatty drunkenly on the porch, and he, he says, I, you go through your life thinking you're the main character, and you find out you're not. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were thinking? No, I was thinking of the, the crime scene fuck scene. Yeah, crime scene fuck scene, and I was also thinking of um, the chess game. Where um, uh, D'Angelo teaches Wallace and I think it was Poot uh, that they're playing, playing chess wrong, and it's a beautiful scene. It's a beautifully written scene. It's clever. It's smart, but like the McNulty scene, it's, it's very writerly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it kind of pulls you out a little. Although that yeah. that McNulty scene is heartbreaking because a lot of people I think went in to the show seeing you know big hunky white guy cop. He's going to be our star. And the show just cleverly, heartbreakingly deconstructed McNulty through the whole thing. It's like all cop shows have the hard drinking maverick, you know, uh, sleeping around, uh, you know, cop who doesn't play by the rules and doesn't, you know, turn in your badge and gun. And this is you get one here and then you see how ineffectual that archetype really is. And, and it's really affecting when McNulty realizes that as well. Um you know, that's sort of the show's, one of the show's statements there is that that doesn't work. One of the first things that, because of course, when you watch The Wire, unless you're one of the very few people who watched it while it was on or watched it live, you're going to watch the show already having heard about it and already knowing certain things about it. And so I went into the show knowing that it was critically lauded and it was like the Citizen Kane vertigo of TV. Everybody agrees it's it's genius and brilliant. Um but like like we've said, it's, it it starts a little slow, especially if you go in expecting greatness. Um, but the first thing that really captured me about about this series in the very first or second episode was the way that its asshole doesn't play by the co rules lead, you know, Maverick cop really was an asshole, was a straight-up <laughs> asshole. You completely got why nobody wanted to work with him. He was a pain in the ass. He made all their lives difficult, and he might be right about this, this Stringer Bell guy, but that doesn't make, change the fact that he makes everybody's lives miserable. And, and that he thinks that his way is going to affect any sort of change other than making him feel better. Feel powerful. And it's so yeah. much more about him and his ego than it is because he he cares about bringing down Stringerbell because he thinks he can do it. And he wants to, you know, basically <laughs> take measuring competition with the guy. Uh, but, yeah, it would it would help. It would, you know, getting him off the streets. That's great. That's a laudable goal. The way he goes about it is all about his ego rather than about actually trying to help people. 
Right. And the show is full of people doing the right things for the wrong reasons or the wrong things for the right reasons or, or some variant of that. And mm-hmm. um, when we're talking about sort of the tropes that we're used to in cop shows, I think we have to talk about people like Rawls and Daniels, his superiors, uh, who uh, they have their own share of sort of ass covering and political bullshit and and things that they do as part of their job. But they also feel like people. And they, I think this is the first show to really humanize uh, or really cop media of any kind. Uh, you know, the, the the higher ups are always just these uh, these people that snap at you and like and have these and are going to make the wrong choice because they've got to they've got to cover their ass, et cetera, et cetera. And if anything, like <laughs> those are harder people to humanize than drug dealers. <laughs> yeah. Bureaucrats. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, the scene where where after Kima is shot and Rawls takes McNulty aside because McNulty he's broken up, but he's also doing what McNulty does. He's being very self pitying, and it's all about him, and it's my fault. And Rawls pulls him aside and just basically says, "I hate you, but this isn't your fault." It's like right, yes. <laughs> yeah. See, that's that's a great example of a moment that's writerly, but folds in naturally. And those are the moments that really stand out for me. Like, uh, like for instance, I know that people are kind of divided on Marlowe and think that he's not as interesting, uh, sort of a, a head drug kingpin as some of the other characters, which I actually think is the point of the character. The fact that he's he's got this blunt force aspect compared to someone like Stringer Bell. I think that's compelling in and of itself. But his his whole uh, dialogue with, with the convenience store clerk where he says, you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, which to me is sort of like the ultimate wire line. Uh, it says so much, uh, but it's not, uh, but it's, it, but it doesn't have that sort of needlessly flowery quality that, or, or needlessly sort of metatextual quality that some of the dialogue we've already sort of nitpicked at has. Like that to me is the show at its best when it can manage that perfect pitched balance of, uh, of being considered while feeling natural. Yeah, I the thing with Marlowe, I think, yeah, I, I you know, after Stringer and after uh, Avon, you know, you're thinking this guy is kind of a, a blank. He's not as colorful, but I think that's kind of the show's statement of where Baltimore is heading. It's almost like Stringer and Avon and, you know, their kind of humanity and their aspirational kind of aspects in even in the crime you know, side of, of Baltimore is kind of like the good old days. Like now you get Marlowe. Marlowe is all about nothing but, you know, like he says, when those kids attack him, it's, it's his name. It's, you know, I, that's all he is. And there's very little humanity and it's, he's, he's chilling. I love that. Uh, this is Jamie Hector, the actor. I really yeah. like his performance. Well, we have already gone past our normal allotted time. And we've barely even, I don't even want to say we've scratched the surface of the wire because that that indicates the notion that we've actually gone past a level. <laughs> uh, and I think we'd need a, a lot, a hell of a lot more time to do that. So we've seen the surface with a periscope or something. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, we'll, and we'll ponder maybe we will have another part two on the wire at some point. But for right now, why don't we each go around and say, a few things that we feel like we got to say about the wire or that, that are, need to be brought up. Um, even if we don't get to delve into them, uh, cause there's, there is so very much, uh, Dennis, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, 
going back to my idea of being brought up short at the idea of watching The Wire in sort of a white privilege patronizing way, I remember writing an article once, just getting getting a bee in my bonnet and being angry because I saw that um, uh, uh, Kima, the, the actress who plays Kima, was was on, I can't even remember the name of the show, but she was playing, she was like fourth in the credits for some cop show starring Dana Delaney after the wire went off the air and I just got furious. So I wrote this whole article once for a <laughs> blog that doesn't really exist anymore about um, just going through uh, my favorite sort of actors on the wire, the, the African-American characters and talking about just going to their IMDb pages and getting more and more furious after the wire and seeing like JD Williams, who plays Bodie, who's, you know, front to back over the course of the series, um, just a steady, really engaging charismatic presence and seeing you know him ending up you know it's like his credits will be like drug dealer or jamal or thing and things that you've never heard of and and uh you know so uh i guess my point was <laughs> that uh that uh the 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 work that these actors were uh, allowed to do on this show um is kind of heartbreaking because they kind of most of them, uh, you know, Idris Elba. I mean, I guess Simon, you said that you thought that a lot of them did well, but I, I'm talking about like some of the, uh, you know, the the character actors on the show. They kind of they sunk back down. They they're never gonna get this kind of opportunity, and I think that's a damn shame. You know, I mean, there's you can play a, a drug dealer on the wire, and that's one thing, but being stuck playing a drug dealer on some, you know, on CSI or something, uh, that's something else, and. uh I remember just one quick short story. They're so um, indelible. Another actor who's done really well after the show is Michael B. Jordan, who played Wallace in the first season. Mm -hmm. It was just heartbreaking. And he's doing great now, actually. Um, but we didn't really... I, he kind of fell off my radar until I started watching Friday Night Lights, and I was watching it with my wife, uh, who also writes for the AV Club, and uh, she'd be probably embarrassed that I said this, but she burst out crying when she saw him on the show. Uh and I said, what's the matter? And she said, oh, I'm so glad Wallace is okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's just so many, like like you said, we, we barely scratched the surface. There's so many people to talk about, but I don't know. That's all. Oh, that's a great point. And I just think it's tip of, tip of the hat to Friday Night Lights and to The Walking Dead is the big one right now for casting mm -hmm. these people and giving them characters to play. Uh, obviously, the not, not always... Successfully, I think the uh, the um, Lawrence Gilliard Jr. character that shows up for like a scene in Friday Night Lights was such a wasted opportunity um, that they didn't give him more. But he, he did get to play an actual character on The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead just keeps bringing in people from The Wire. And I say, fuck, yeah, because why wouldn't <laughs> you? These like you say, these are these are a very talented Ensemble and yes, I absolutely agree with Simon that we have seen a lot of the 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 main characters, um, especially the male main characters, pop up other places. A lot of the supporting characters, less so, at least for me. And so, I, and it's hard to know because because TV is such a collaborative medium. It is hard to know how much is writing, how much is direction, how much is performance, how much is all of that. But Andre Royo is amazing as Bubbles. 
uh, absolutely breaks your heart and lifts your soul over the course of the series. Him walking up the stairs is one of the most inspirational moments <laughs> in television. And if you've seen the show, you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, and yet he was on a couple of, he was on some episodes of Fringe. Didn't get much to do, but was it was like, hey, look, it's Bubbles. And he <laughs> he's showing up as, hey, look, it's Bubbles places. He's not being given characters to sink his teeth into. And that's just a complete and utter shame. Um, the, the point that I will mention is uh, something that Simon and I were talking about before we started recording. And that is, like I said earlier, I absolutely adore season four. For me, it's the best season of the show. And it's, it's not particularly close. I think have, centering the season around the education system and around that group of kids adds an extra level of of stakes to everything that's already been explored in the previous three seasons. Having it be season four, I think is key to that as well. Um, but it, it makes everything that much more significant and, uh, and that much more powerful. Can you think of another show? And Simon, we already talked about this a little bit, but Dennis as well. Can you think of another show whose best season is it season that doesn't really have its main character in it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Unless you consider bubbles, the secret main character. Well, there's True. that, I suppose. Yeah, season, if I can, just season four. Another kind of <laughs> thing, um, this is the time where I embarrass myself, um, sort of extra textually. I, I watched the commentary for one of the episodes of season four, and it was one of the, where the, the four kids and uh, Robert Chu, who played Prop Joe, who was also kind of the on-set acting coach for the kids because he did children's theater, they all did commentary for an episode. And I got... I started crying because they were so happy. They were just showbiz kids. They were goofing around and they were, they were just so, you know, well-adjusted. And I, I just, you know, they had just made such an effect on me that just, you know, it's stupid, but it, just knowing that they were okay, just made me so, uh, so happy. <laughs> well, and it shows you how connected you get to these characters, especially yeah. the young ones. Absolutely. I, I love that story about, about Emily, your, your wife. That's because <laughs> I know how she feels. Absolutely. Uh, Simon, what's your, your, what your final thought or two for, for this session on the wire? The major lesson that I want people to take from the wire on the creative end is get the people who know. And I'm talking about, uh, the creatives, and I'm talking about, in some cases, the people on screen. Uh, you know, get people, uh, if you if you have specialized subject matter, get journalists on board in the case of the show. Get, uh, get ex-cops on board. Get ex-journalists on board. Get people with specialized knowledge of what you're talking about. One show that's really benefiting from that right now is The Americans, which is uh, run by Joe Weisberg, who is himself, uh, you know, a former spook or spook-aligned. I'm not really sure. Uh, but like he he has a significant experience in the intelligence community, and that helps inform this very specific portrait of spyhood in America. Uh, you know, connected to this, this to this particular time period that he has specific knowledge of. And the wire is full of personnel on both sides of the screen. Uh, you know, you've got some real cops in that cast, uh, not you not in main roles, but sort of peppering the supporting cast. Uh, a great example is uh, I think uh, some of the bubble stuff that works uh, the best is I love every scene he gets with Steve Earle. Steve Earle is mm -hmm. a guy who knows some some stuff about motherfucking doing drugs, okay? <laughs> that is a guy who has seen some some dark dark stuff. And you know, not not necessarily an uh you know, a great an incredible actor of great range, but a guy who brings uh lived experience to that role. 
And the show is is full of stuff like that on on both sides of the camera. And I wish I think that's the main lesson uh, that I wish other shows had learned from was you want verisimilitude, you want uh, you want a sense of reality, you want uh, a, a deep connection to these sort of uh, writerly constructions. Bring something real to the table. And I'd throw into that conversation as well, Treme huge in a huge way as yeah. well as Mad Men and Matt Weiner's being based so much on Matt Weiner's experience and vision of that time period from when he was growing up and the memories he has of his parents and of that time. I mean, it's a very specific show with a very distinct point of view from someone who has something to say about that time period. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Well, uh, Oh man, there's so I want to do favorite characters. <laughs> I want to do favorite moments. I want to do favorite episodes, but we just don't have time because I know we'll talk for another thirty minutes. So I'm going to cut it off there. Um, and Dennis, hopefully at some point you'll come back and we can do a part two. Oh, I'd be honored. Yeah, I thank feel you. like we need to. <laughs> I'd love it. Um, but for now, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Oh, uh, AV Club. Uh, I review a lot of TV and do various doodads. I do the weekend what's on tonight, so I'll tell you what's on the TV. Um, uh, if you're in Portland, Maine, come uh, support your local video store, Videoport. Give it up. <laughs> if you have a local video store near you, support them. They're, they're endangered and, and necessary. And uh, I don't know if you want to mention Twitter or... Oh, sure. Uh, Dennis Perkins 5. Add Twitter. Yep. Okay, great. And again, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. (laughs) 